Good morning. Today's scripture reading is Book of John, chapter 11, 1 to 53. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that they, he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called a twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if he had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? 
Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an other, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed you, uh, if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who had scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be here with you today. This year, we have been going through the story of the Bible as a church, and we've been trying to see that the Bible isn't just a bunch of individual disconnected stories, but the Bible is actually one unified story that takes place over the course of several different scenes and acts uh, to, to come together as one big story. And someone once said that if you wanted to summarize the entire story of the Bible in two words, seems like a big task, right? If you wanted to summarize the entire message of the Bible in two words, those two words would be, trust me. That the Bible, the entire Bible is God's message to humanity, teaching us that life is meant to be lived according to his way. That when we trust him, We obey him. We live in a way that leads to blessings for us and for everyone around us. And when we stop trusting God and instead rely on ourselves, we make a mess of the world. We hurt and harm ourselves and others. And it just makes things so much worse. And so the Bible is God's message to us, telling us to trust him. And on one level, the whole Bible is written to teach us to trust God. But If you look at the book of John specifically, where we are today, John is written very specifically to teach us to trust in Jesus. John actually tells us in John chapter 20, verse 31, he says that these things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. The book of John, which we're looking at today, is written so that we will believe in Jesus, that we'll trust in him and have life in his name. And right now in our journey through the Bible, we're looking at the life of Jesus. And 
Today we're, like I said, looking at a story from Jesus' life, from the book of John, and it's a story all about belief. It's a story where Jesus, God in human flesh, is calling you and me to trust him. And so what we're going to see today is that the proper response to Jesus is belief. And we'll look at the path to greatest belief, Jesus meeting us where we are, Jesus having the power to sustain belief, and then finally the required response. Before we look at the passage, let's pray. Jesus, we need you every moment of every day to sustain us, to lead us, to guide us. I pray that we would see and feel that truth more deeply today during our time together, that that we would be drawn to you, that your name would be lifted high through this time. We would know you more deeply and trust you more deeply. In Jesus' name, amen. So first up, the path to greatest belief. I want to ask you a question. If God is really there, and if God really loves you, what will he make your life like? If God's really there, if he really loves you, if you really trust in him, what is he going to make your life like? (laughs) Yeah, I think most of us would probably say he would give me the best life possible, right? that's, That's what we would expect, that if God is really there, if he really loves us, he will give us the best life possible possible, which of course raises another question. What does it mean to have the best life possible? This is an age-old philosophical question. If you've ever studied philosophy, this is something philosophers talk about a bunch. What is the best life possible? And I think for many people in our culture, probably many of us, probably me a lot of the time included, we would answer the best life possible is the one where I have the lowest amount of pain and inconvenience and the greatest amount of pleasure. Does that sound familiar? And let me warn you as we start out, if that's your picture of the best life possible, today's passage is going to deeply disturb you. Because today's passage shows us that that God does want to give us the best life possible, but he defines the best life possible differently than we typically do. And the difference between his answer to what makes the best life possible and our answer to what makes the best life possible is big enough that if we come in with the wrong attitude, it's going to bother us. See, Jesus shows us in today's passage, God does want to give us the best life possible. But according to God, the best life possible isn't the one where we're most happy and comfortable right now in this moment. According to God, the best life possible is the one where we trust him. And that's the best life possible because on the grand scheme of eternity, that's going to give us the greatest pleasure possible and the least pain possible. But it might mean that we need to experience more suffering here and now than we'd ideally like to. I mean, you can think of it kind of like exercise, right? Like you do something inconvenient now so that you'll be healthier and stronger later. We, we understand this concept in theory, but I think, at least for me, probably for many of us, if we think about that in terms of the way that God treats us in this lifetime, sometimes it can be a little bit difficult, especially when we see it played out in real life scenarios like we do in today's passage. And throughout today's passage, Jesus' top priority is not making people comfortable It's not helping them avoid pain and suffering. It's leading them down the path that will bring them to the deepest faith possible in him. And we see this basically from the start of the passage. John tells us that a certain man was ill. His name was Lazarus of Bethany. 
This family that Lazarus was part of apparently was really good friends with Jesus. We see a handful of interactions between Jesus and them throughout the Gospels, but we get a hint right here that they probably had a deeper friendship. We see in verse 3, his sisters, Lazarus' sisters, send a message to Jesus saying, he whom you love is ill. Like, think about how close of a friend you have to be with someone to refer to them as the person you love. That's a deep friendship. Jesus had a deep relationship with his family. We get snapshots of it, but there's so much more depth to who he was as a person and the types of relationships he had with people than the snapshots we get in the Bible. And when Jesus gets this request, he answers and says, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And verses five and six then tell us something that at first glance seems contradictory. See if you pick it up. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, what would you expect that sentence to end as? Like he went right away to heal his friend. He spoke a word and then didn't even need to bother going back because his friend was instantly healed from right away. That's not what it says. Check out what it says. He loved this family. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Does anyone just like feel angry about that? I felt angry about that as I was, as I was looking at this passage this week. Like why, if you love them, why do you let them keep suffering longer? Like why, how is that loving to make a choice that's going to leave them in greater agony for a longer amount of time. And to answer this, we need to remember that in Jesus' eyes, the best life is not maximum pleasure, minimum pain right here and now. For Jesus, the best life is the one where we trust him. Because that's the life where we are eternally secure. That's the life where we experience the greatest overall blessings and pleasure long-term in the grand scheme of eternity. But that means that for Lazarus and his family, for us today, Jesus will sometimes allow our suffering here and now to last longer than we feel like it needs to. And he'll do that because he has a bigger goal for us in that suffering. The suffering is his tool and his gift to strengthen our faith in him. And so Jesus waits two days longer before going back to heal his friend. And he makes it very clear that his goal in doing this is to help people believe. After two days pass, he tells his disciples, it's time to go to Lazarus, my friend, who we got the message about saying he was sick. And the disciples, when they hear this, they're shocked because right at the end of chapter 10, the people in this area where Lazarus lives wanted Jesus dead and they were trying to kill him and he had to run away to save his life. And the disciples are like, hey, Jesus, are you sure it's the best idea to go back there? We might all end up dead if you do that. And he answers them something that seems a little weird. Are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. He's basically saying, God has a plan for me. God has things for me to be doing. And as long as it's daytime, as long as I'm alive, I need to keep doing the things that God has called me to do. And you need to come do them with me because you're my followers. The, the time's coming where I'm going to be killed. I won't be able to do anything anymore. But right now I can. And so we need to be faithful about doing the things that God is calling me to do. And then he tells them in verses 14 and 15, Lazarus has died. 
And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Jesus is saying somehow him not being present when Lazarus died, him waiting two extra days before going to help out his friend actually is a tool to help his followers believe in him. His goal in this situation is to draw not just Lazarus and his sisters to faith in him, but also to draw his disciples to faith in him. And in order to bring them all to this point where they actually trust him, he allows the situation to get far worse before he steps in to make it better. And he has the same goal in your life. God's goal in your life is for you to believe in him and trust him completely because that's the path to the true good life. And when we look at this from the wrong perspective, when we look at the good life as the the most pleasure, the least pain right here, right now, seeing that in contrast to God's picture of the good life for us, it's gonna make us angry because sometimes God's gonna take away pleasure and give us more pain right here and now for the sake of our long-term good. But when, when our perspective is on right here, right now and not eternity, That just seems unfair, seems unjust, it makes us angry, but actually it's coming from a place of love. It's God giving us the greatest good that he can possibly give us when that happens. And so we need to learn to see the world, to see our circumstances through a new lens and a new perspective so we can see and understand what God is doing in our lives properly. God works with the people in this passage. God works with us to put us on the path towards the greatest possible belief. But not only does Jesus put us on the path to maximum belief, he also meets us where we are as we travel that path. So let's look at meeting us where we are. See, Jesus heads out. He arrives at this town of Bethany. And when he gets there, he learns that his friend Lazarus has been dead four days which is really important for this story. Now, if you're good at math, you realize Jesus waited two days before going back. And when he gets there, his friend has been dead for four days, which means even if Jesus had left right away when he got this message, he would have been too late by two days. And in Jewish culture, when someone died, you buried them that same day. We see that with Jesus on the cross. They're like, we got to take him down, bury him before it gets tonight. But there was this belief in Jewish culture that for the first three days after someone died, or up until the third day, their their soul hovered over their body, waiting to re-enter it. And then once the soul sees the body start to decompose, it realizes there's no way I'm getting back in there, and it leaves and goes away. So if you're a fan of the Princess Bride, do we have any Princess Bride fans here? A couple? Okay. So you could say in Jewish culture, up until the third day, the person was only mostly dead. But once you get to that third day, they're all dead. And once someone is all dead, there's usually only one thing left to do. Go through the clothes and look for loose change, right? <laughs> A couple of people got that joke. But what this meant in the context of Lazarus is if Jesus had left right away when he got the message and he had come back to try and help his friend and he arrived the second day, and raise Lazarus from the dead. Some people might not have seen that as a super, super amazing miracle. Because in in the minds of a Jewish person, the spirit or soul coming back into the body on the second day, it's incredibly rare, it's amazing, but it can happen. 
because the soul was still hovering around waiting to come back into the body. It's maybe more of a resuscitation than a resurrection. It's amazing, but maybe not a full miracle. But arriving from the third day or later means that the dead man coming back to life is absolutely, completely, under all circumstances, impossible. Only God could do that. By all accounts, there is no hope left. And of course, you and I know Jesus is about to do this incredible miracle, but nobody there knew that. They thought he was just showing up to the funeral of a friend who he loved. It was beyond what they saw as within the realm of possibility for Jesus to bring Lazarus back from the dead. And it's within that context that Martha, probably the oldest sister in the family, hears that Jesus is nearby. When she hears that Jesus is there, she comes out and she tells him, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And we meet Martha a couple times in the Gospels. And from those times, we get a little bit of a glimpse of her personality. Martha is someone who is very task-oriented. She knows what chores and roles are expected of her by society, and she's very good about doing those roles properly so that she looks good in the eyes of others and, and fulfills her duty properly. She's a very practical and pragmatic person. So when Jesus arrives, she comes and she says this to him. She's probably being quite matter of fact. Like, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. She's focused on the facts. She's focused on the task at hand. Her brother is dead. That's a fact. And she's sad, but there are expectations from society that she's going to welcome the guests who come. And so she's going to do her role properly. And she comes, she tells Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God... God will give you. And she obviously believes in Jesus, believes that God will give whatever he asks, that Jesus can do anything. But her definition of what it means to believe in him and his definition of what it means to believe in him are out of line with one another. She says, whatever you ask from God, God will give it to you. But it doesn't even cross her mind that Jesus could ask God to raise her brother from the dead because he's, he's all dead. They don't come back after that point. She has faith that Jesus can do anything, but her definition of anything is too narrow. And one of the beautiful things about Jesus is even though she's not where he wants her to be with her faith yet, he meets her where she is. She comes to Jesus matter-of-factly, intellectually, and so Jesus engages her intellectually. He gives her a theology discussion, which she happily engages with. He challenges her belief from an intellectual standpoint. He uses this theological discussion to take her from a place where she abstractly believes that there is a God out there who someday, after we're all dead, will bring us all back to life at some point in the distant future to showing her that what she needs is a concrete faith in the individual standing in front of her today. He calls her to not only trust in a God who is out there somewhere, but to trust in God made flesh who is standing right in front of her right now. And at the end, when when he says to her, do you believe this? He's not saying, do you believe that I'm going to raise your brother from the dead in an amazing miracle today? He's asking her, do you really believe that I am who I say I am? And she says, yes. And she doesn't realize this, but by saying yes, of course, she's opening up the possibility that she believes Jesus could do something for her brother, even though she doesn't realize that's what she's saying. But the amazing thing about Jesus is he doesn't give this one-size-fits-all response to everyone. 
Because once he finishes talking to Martha, he sends for her sister, Mary. Mary is probably the younger sister in the family. And Mary comes out, followed by all of the mourners in their house who see her going out and decide to go with her because they think she's going to cry at her brother's tomb. And when Mary arrives at Jesus, the first thing she does is fall down at his feet. Now again, like Martha, we meet Mary a handful of times throughout the Gospels. Mary is much more people-oriented than her sister. Martha is task-oriented. Mary is people-oriented. She's more likely to be the person who ignores her responsibilities of hospitality and having the food ready and setting the plates for dinner and stuff because she just wants to sit at the table and talk to all the guests. That's who Mary is. And the incredible thing about Mary is that every single time we meet her, she's at Jesus' feet. So the first time we meet her, this family has Jesus over for dinner at their, ta- the, uh, at their house. Martha is so busy getting all the food ready for everyone. And Mary is just sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him teach like one of his disciples. And Martha comes and gets really angry. And she's like, Jesus, my sister is supposed to be in the kitchen because that's the place for a woman. Her words, not mine. But get her to go help in the kitchen. And Jesus says, no, she made the better choice. She needs to be here with me right now. The second time we meet Mary is here in this story. And then the third time is actually in the next chapter, in John chapter 12, where Jesus again is having dinner at this family's house. And she brings this really, really expensive perfume that's worth like a year's wages and dumps it all over Jesus' feet and washes his feet with her hair. Every time we meet her, she is at Jesus' feet. And for for Mary, being at Jesus' feet, it's a place of trust. It's a place of intimacy. It's a place of humility. It's a place of dependence. And so here she comes to Jesus. She falls at his feet and she says the exact same words her sister said. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But Jesus responds to her in a way that matches where she is. Martha's comments drew a theology lesson out of Jesus. He engages her intellectually. But with Mary, she engages him emotionally. She comes to him, like I said, in trust, intimacy, dependence, humility. And in response, verse 33 tells us that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Literally, that means he was angry and outraged. Not at Mary, but at the sin and brokenness and hurt and death in the world that, that hurt the people he loves. Because he can see right there how this is impacting the person that he loves. And it makes him angry to see how the, the brokenness and the unbelief in the world causes such havoc and chaos on the people that he loves. Jesus genuinely loves people. And because he loves people, he hates and gets angry at the things that harm us and keep us from having full, abundant lives. And this anger and outrage, they're drawn out in response to Mary's emotional coming to him. Just as he did with Martha, he meets Mary where she is on this path to belief. And as Jesus engages emotionally with Mary, he asks, where is Lazarus buried? So they bring him to the tomb. And when he sees it, he cries. Jesus again responds emotionally to the situation. And I think the tears are actually prompted by the same thing as the anger by the sin and death and brokenness and unbelief in the world and the way that they hurt the people around us. Jesus is angry about sin and its effects, but also sad about it. 
which is this really important balance to have because one without the other leads to an incomplete response. If you're sad about it, but not angry, then you might complain about how everything's wrong, but it's not gonna drive you to actually be active in addressing what needs to be changed in the situation. And if you're angry about it, but not sad, then you're gonna become really self-righteous and look down on others and, and not actually have compassion and empathy for the real people who are suffering genuine hurt because of these things. But Jesus strikes this perfect balance, being angry about sin and its effects, but also sad about sin and its effects so that he can be driven to action, but also he can act with compassion and love. And I think that's how he wants us to respond to the sin and brokenness in the world too. But Jesus meets each sister where they are and works from there to strengthen their faith in him. And he does the same with us. He meets us wherever we are. There's no ideal personality type to become a Christian. Jesus comes to us. If you're a Myers-Briggs, it doesn't matter whether you're an extrovert or an introvert. It doesn't matter whether you're a, a feeler or a thinker, a judger, a perceiver. It doesn't matter. Jesus is willing to meet you where you are on this path to faith. Regardless of where we're starting from, Jesus' goal is that as we interact with him, we'll learn to trust him more each day. So there's an invitation for all of us to come to him because he's willing to meet us where we are. But not only does he meet us where we are, he also has the power to sustain our belief. See, Jesus comes to the tomb and he tells them, take away the stone. Have you ever stopped and thought about how like wildly insensitive so much stuff Jesus says and does would be if he didn't follow it up with miracles? Like in no culture ever is it okay to come up to a tomb and be like, yeah, just take away the stone. That's, that's just so insensitive, unless you're gonna follow it up by raising the person inside the tomb from the dead, right? But Martha, she hears Jesus give this command, always the analytical problem solver. She's like, hold up a minute, Jesus. She's not bothered by how inappropriate and terrible of a suggestion this is from a societal standpoint. She's just focused on the practicals. He's been in there four days. He's decomposing. It's going to smell terrible in there. You don't want to be exposed to that. You don't want us to be exposed to that. That's just going to be nasty. And Jesus reminds her, if you really believe in me, you'll do what I say, and then you'll see the glory of God. He appeals to her logic again. And it works. She says, fine, do it. Take away the stone. And then Jesus prays. And notice, this is a weird prayer. He says, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. You notice what's not in that prayer. Any type of request for God to raise Lazarus from the dead. Jesus doesn't stand there and pray that God would heal Lazarus or raise him from the dead. He thanks God that God has already answered his prayer. And he says mid-prayer, like, I know that you always answer my prayer. I'm actually praying this so that everyone listening to me right now can know that you answered my prayer, that, that this isn't just me, that it's you. Jesus is so in tune with God's will that he knows in advance that his prayer has been answered. And so at this point, as he's at the tomb, rather than continue to pray like, God, please raise Lazarus, he just stands there and says, thank you, God. And that's his prayer. That's, I wish I had a prayer life that was that powerful, don't you? <laughs> I've got a long way to go before I get to that point. Jesus finishes his prayer and he says, Lazarus, come out. And he does. Just think about that. He speaks the word and the dead man gets up 
from the tomb and begins to walk out. The voice that spoke creation into being brings his dead friend back to life. Many people over the years have pointed out that when Jesus says, Lazarus, come out, he needed to say Lazarus because his voice is so powerful that if he didn't specify he was speaking only to Lazarus, everyone who had ever died throughout history would have come back to life at the power of his voice. I personally think creation knows what its creator means when he speaks, that they would, it would only do that if that was actually what Jesus wanted. But the voice of Jesus is powerful enough to do that. And we see from his conversation with Martha that one day his voice will do that. His voice has the power to bring life from death. We've been looking a bunch recently in the past several weeks at how God's word brings life. This is one of the most tangible examples of that truth in the entire Bible, that God's word brings life. And by displaying this power over death, Jesus demonstrates that he has the power to sustain our belief. If we trust in Jesus, we are absolutely secure because nothing, not even death, can stop his power. Those who trust in Jesus are secure forever. Not even death can take us from him because he has power over even death. But as amazing as this miracle is, we see as we keep reading in the book of John, Jesus is about to do an even greater miracle that's going to give us even greater confidence in him and his ability to to sustain our trust and come through for us. Because raising Lazarus from the dead is amazing. It's an incredible miracle that only God can do, but it's still incomplete. I mean, look how Lazarus comes out of the tomb. He came out with his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. He looks like a zombie. He's sort of walking out like, can't see where I'm going. I need some, some help. And Jesus tells them like, help unbind him. Like someone go untie him so that he can come out and, and join the party that used to be a funeral, but now is a party. Have him come join us after you untie him. Lazarus, after raising from the dead, is still subject to the frailties and limitations of normal human life in our broken world. One day, Lazarus died again. We don't know when, we don't know how, but we know it happened because he was still a broken, sinful human being living in a broken and sinful world. A few years back, archaeologists actually found a tomb in the ancient town of Bethany that was marked with the names Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Now, we don't know whether that's actually this family or another family that happened to have the same names, but we know that there is a tomb somewhere in that town that has the physical remains of this man because he died again. This miracle was amazing, but it was incomplete. But the resurrection of Jesus from the dead was an entirely different category from this miracle. Lazarus left the, left the tomb wrapped in his grave clothes. He needed someone to help him get out of them. When Jesus rose from the dead, his grave clothes were left behind, folded up. He took on a totally new type of body that apparently had the ability to materialize inside locked rooms. Lazarus died again, but Jesus lives forever. The remains of Lazarus are today buried somewhere in Israel. Jesus today is seated at the Father's right hand. The resurrection of Lazarus showed that Jesus has power over death. But the resurrection of Jesus shows that Jesus has defeated death once and for all forever. Jesus has the power to sustain the belief of those who trust in him because he not only has the power to command death, but he has defeated it once and for all. I don't know about you. As I read the story, there are just so many questions that I have. Like, what was the first thing Lazarus said after he came back? 
What was his experience while he was dead? You notice John totally ignores those questions because that might make the story more entertaining. But like we've been saying, John's goal isn't to tell us an entertaining story. It's to get us to trust in Jesus. He gives us all the details we need to trust in Jesus if we are gonna trust in him. But not everyone who hears the story will believe because belief requires response. So let's look at this required response. You know, I've talked to several people in my life about Jesus who have told me, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know if I can believe in Jesus because I've never seen him or the things that he's done. Have you ever thought that yourself or talked to someone who felt that way? You know, if I could see Jesus today, I would believe in him, but all we have are, are written records from 2,000 years ago, so we can't really trust that like we could if we saw it with our own eyes. And this story that we're looking at today actually proves that that's not true. Because after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, John tells us how the crowds respond to him. Remember, the Jews that John is talking about in verses 45 and 46 were the people who were eyewitnesses to this miracle. They were the people standing around outside the tomb, listening to Jesus pray, hearing him say, Lazarus, come out, and watching the dead man walk towards them. And how did they respond to this miracle? Well, John tells us many of them believed in Jesus, which is good. That's what Jesus was hoping would happen from this miracle. But then John tells us that others of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus has done. The Pharisees are consistently fighting against Jesus, trying to stop him. And many of the people who watched Jesus raise this man from the dead, look at this amazing miracle, and all they can think is, oh, more ammunition to give to his enemies to, so that they can stop him. How insane is that? You, you watch this man raise someone from the dead, and rather than say, yes, let me get on his side, let me follow him, all they can think about is how do we stop him? What this means is that part of the crowd does believe after seeing the miracle, but part of them doesn't. For some of the eyewitnesses, they see the miracle and all they wanna do is stop him, which means, as we have on the screen, seeing is not always believing. Without the faith to believe in Jesus, to believe that he is who he says he is, you can watch the greatest miracle ever happen with your own eyes. And instead of celebrating and praising God for it, you can explain it away as something that needs to be stopped at absolutely any cost. Seeing a miracle isn't the key that makes faith possible. Believing in Jesus is the key that allows you to see the miracle as a miracle. Faith is necessary in order to believe that a miracle is truly a miracle, even if you see it with your own eyes. And we see these people, they go to the Pharisees, they tell them what they've done or what Jesus has done. And the Pharisees are even more extreme in their response. They call a meeting of all the top Jewish religious leaders. They decide together, Jesus needs to die for doing these miracles, which is totally illogical, right? I mean, you stop and think about it. If this miracle is real, he just showed that he has power over death and you're gonna kill him? How's that gonna work? Spoiler, spoiler alert, not well. Because he has power over death. If he truly has power over death, you wanna get on his side, not keep opposing him. But on the flip side, if the miracle's not true, if Jesus is the greatest con man ever and he's tricked all these people, it's actually best not to kill him right now. It's best to let him keep going and be exposed for his lies so that people turn on him of their own will. 
Like if you kill him right now while he's at this level of popularity, right after raising a man from the dead, you know what that does? It sets him aside as a martyr. Everyone's just gonna keep talking about how amazing he was even after he's gone. That's, that's self-defeating in your purpose. If you're the Pharisees, under no circumstance is killing Jesus a logical choice for these religious leaders, but they're so blinded by their rage. They can't see logic. That's what sin and unbelief does. It blinds us. It warps our thinking. We see from the Bible, unbelief is actually the ultimate form of sin. And these religious leaders are stuck. They're trapped in their unbelief. So they can't even think clearly about how to respond to Jesus in the aftermath of this miracle. But the whole message of this passage, whole message of the Bible, is that you and I don't have to live in unbelief. As we've been seeing, the whole series of events Jesus goes through in this passage are for the sake of bringing people to the place where they believe in him. Jesus wants us to trust him. He wants us to know him and to relate to him as the resurrection and the life. He wants us to understand and believe that all the power he used for the good of Lazarus and his family, he wants to use for the good of us today. It doesn't mean he's going to make everything comfortable and and maximize our pleasure right now, but it does mean that he's working to give us the greatest comfort and pleasure over the course of eternity. But to get that, we need to trust him. And in order to bring us to a place where we can trust him, he, he takes us down that path that leads towards greatest belief. He meets us where we are on that path and works with us to help us grow from there. And he shows us that he has the power to sustain our belief, but it still requires a response from us. It was true back then. It's true today. So I want to ask you, will you trust Jesus today? Will you believe that he is God, that he has the power to sustain your eternity and that life is best when it's lived in a relationship with him? Let's pray. Jesus, your power is beyond what I can comprehend. And the fact that you would use that power for our good It's just amazing. Such good news, God. Pray that you would help each of us to really trust you and believe in you and to see that as good news today. Pray that we would come to you wherever we are and and have you meet us on that path towards trusting you so we can have that good, blessed life that you want to give to us. In Jesus' name, amen.